Thanks, James, for reading the passage for us. Well, uh, it's good to see everyone here again. And, uh, and I, just, I just said that, but we are back here in our study here in 1 Corinthians. And it's been a couple of weeks. Uh, you know, we had Palm Sunday and then we had Easter Sunday. And so we're back here in uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, just to kind of review a little bit, um, this church and this book, in fact, is, is probably very relevant to us today, not because of the issues that the church had, but also because of the culture that this church lived in. And that culture, I think, it's so far removed from us in terms of time. But in actuality, there are very many uh, similarities that they struggled with that we also struggle with. And so it's a good reason to study the book of First Corinthians. And we've already talked about a particular issue that Paul dealt with in chapter one, and that was the issue of division and, uh, and, the, and the need for unity. And then we talked the next couple of weeks after that uh, with regards to God's idea of wisdom and, and foolishness in contrast to the world's idea. And we're going to continue on that message, but we're looking here in chapter two, verses one through five. So <clears throat> this idea of weakness and foolishness in the eyes of the world, it, it's, it's kind of pervasive throughout the whole chapter and ongoing here in the, the book of First Corinthians. But in verses 18 to 25 of chapter one, uh, we learned about the message, the message of the church, the gospel of Jesus Christ didn't sound that very powerful to people. Uh, the idea of a saving God who would die just didn't make sense to a lot of people. It sounded foolish. It sounded weak. So the message was foolish. But then in verse 26 to verse 31, if you, if you remember, uh, the members, the members are also considered pretty weak. Uh, remember what we said? Paul says himself, not many were wise, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. And so the people weren't powerful. The message sounded weak and foolish, and the people sounded pretty weak and foolish. And today in our passage then, Paul talks about now the ministry, or we could say the ministers, its servants, the church's leaders, right? Uh, whether it was Paul or whether it was Apollos or whether it was Cephas, right? Whether it was their favorite pastor or their favorite preacher, they too also sounded oftentimes in the ears and the eyes of the Corinthian people pretty, pretty foolish or pretty weak, not very smart or not very wise. And so that's where we are. The message is weak, the members look foolish, and the ministers, the leaders themselves didn't look that impressive. And so what we're looking here in, in uh, chapter 2 verses 1 to 5 is that Paul begins to talk about the ministers, particularly, all right? He talked about the message, he talked about the members, now he's talking about the ministers, and he's talking particularly about himself as a messenger of this message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so here in the first five verses of chapter two, Paul, Paul basically gives you a, a synopsis of his own approach to his ministry, okay? In verses one and two, he highlights for us what his message is, what he said, okay? And then in verses three and four, he highlights the messenger, who's saying it, who's saying the message. And then last but not least, in verse 5, he gives us his motive, why he said it, or why God uses him in the way he says it in verse 5. And so that's this outline of this passage. And what I'm going to do today is we're going to look today at Paul, all right? And you might think, well, what does this have to do with me? But we need to get this out of the way. We need to see what Paul says about what he's going through. And then next week, we're going to come back to this passage, and we're going to look at what he said and how that more practically applies to us today. 
But listen to what Paul says about himself. Let's learn a little bit about this person, Paul. Here's the outline. He talks about his message. He talks about the messenger, verses 3 and 4. And then he talks about his motive, verse 5. Okay? So verses 1 and 2, Paul, first of all, gives us his message. And notice, not just here in this part in verse 1 and 2, but throughout this whole passage, the way he puts things is, first he gives you a negative, and then he gives you a positive. Okay, he goes negative, positive, negative, positive, negative, and positive. That's the pattern that persists all through these five verses. And so in verse one, he says this negatively. He says, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. That's his negative, that he's talking about himself and he's going to talk about his message. And he says, I didn't come to you guys talking with a lofty speech, a polished speech, or some kind of wisdom. Now, why did Paul say this? Why, did, why would Paul say this? And you'd have to understand this, that the culture back then, in a culture where you had no TV, no videos, right? No movies, uh, no internet, no computers, right? No iPads. What did you do for entertainment? And oftentimes what you did for entertainment is this, you, you talk, you converse, in fact, not just one-on-one, -on -one, but in public, oftentimes you'd see some public speaking. There will be people speaking in public all the time and little crowds gathered around to listen. Public speaking was popular in Paul's time. And so you had people like orators and you had people like entertainers and public speakers speaking on street corners, speaking in lecture halls, speaking in social clubs. Uh, and they oftentimes, if you're gonna do this in public, Oftentimes, they're very gifted speakers. They use certain techniques. They use a certain language, a certain rhetoric, and uh, they sounded very passionate or convicted or emotional or whatever the case is, whatever it is to keep the people's attention. What Paul says in our passage, he says this, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He's saying, I didn't come speaking to you like the people that you listen to today. And what Paul's saying is this. Paul is not saying that he was stupid, okay? Paul's not saying that he's without knowledge, uh, that he didn't put a lot of time into preparing his message. He put a lot of time into preparing his message. He did, I'm sure. But he's telling us this, that he studied hard to ensure that no one would confuse his message with the style of speaking and uh, the style of speech of his day. So he says, instead of that negatively, what does he do? Positively, he says in verse two, look at verse two, he says this, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is what Paul's saying. He's saying this, I want you to get one thing. I want you to get one thing, and I don't want you to understand the way I'm talking. I want you to understand what I'm talking about. And that is Jesus Christ and him crucified. And it was nothing else. This is what Paul wanted to focus on. The message of Christ and him crucified. This is what makes Christian preaching. This is what preaching makes a, Christ, a Christian preach a Christian message. And that is Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's the one thing that Paul says that we need to hear. Christ and him crucified crucified for, for your forgiveness, crucified for cleansing and reconciliation to God, crucified for peace with God and from God, crucified to create a new community, an adoption into his family, and a hundred other myriad of blessings for his glory. 
This is Paul's consistent message, and this is what he wanted to make clear. And he was resolved to preach and proclaim this message as clear as possible, without you confusing or being, uh, I guess, distracted by his style, by his rhetoric, or by the, the, the fancy way of preaching or teaching uh, people saw back in Corinth. He wanted to make sure you got this message. That's the message of his sermon in every sermon. Not five principles of better parenting. Okay, not 10 steps to how to make work a little bit better, not six techniques for a happy marriage. Jesus Christ and his cross, that was his message. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what he wanted to be clear about, his message. And some of us, and even the people in Corinth, they probably thought, every message? I mean, are you serious? Every message, you're gonna just talk about Jesus all the time? It's not very practical, maybe once or twice, but, but what about real life? I mean, what are, when are you going to talk about that? And I'm sure Paul had many of those people saying the same thing. But if you continue to read this letter, and you read, in fact, all of Paul's letters, you and I both know that Paul, in fact, deals very practically with some of the real questions, the questions of marriage, which he'll do in, in, this, in this book, the questions of relationships. He deals with the issues of work. Uh, with, with the issue of sex and intimacy and the very real practical matters of life. But what Paul does is over and over again, he turns the remedy or the response to these very practical matters to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the cross of Christ and what he's done for sinners. Paul is consistent in every message on every subject in pointing our attention to Jesus Christ and the cross, okay? That's the message. That's the focus on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And it might seem foolish, it might seem useless to the world and everybody else listening, but that's his focus, okay? That's the message. And that's verse one and two. The second point here is this. He moves on from his message, and in verses three and four, he now talks about the messenger, okay? We've got the message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and now he talks about his, himself, the messenger. And it's interesting because this is one of the few places you get sort of an autobiography of who this person Paul is. I mean, if you thought about the Apostle Paul, what would you think about? What do you think he would look like? He wrote most of the New Testament, in fact, and you look at this and you would think, this is the kind of person he is. What would that be? And so here we're given a little bit of a biography given by Paul himself. Uh, about himself as a messenger of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's brutally honest with himself, okay? If you look at this in verses three and four, again, he gives you a negative, but then he also gives you a positive. And negatively, he says in verse three, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. Did you know and I think we all know, if you've read the Bible and if you've read Paul's letters, Paul probably was an excellent writer. Um, he was probably an excellent writer, but he probably wasn't a great speaker. Can you imagine that? The guy who goes around town preaching the gospel in public isn't, an, by his own admission, not a great speaker. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 6, he even admits this. He says this about himself. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, Paul says this, or they say this about him. His letters were weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech 
of no account. Okay? We're getting a picture of who Paul is right now. And as you hear about Paul, even from Paul's own description, his speaking was not that great. People knew that about himself. He couldn't really speak that well, in fact. And not only his speaking, but even his physical presence was not that great. If you're picturing Apostle Paul as some big, strong guy who's able to go around town defying the odds and preaching the gospel and all that kind of stuff, that's not the picture we have here. In fact, if you look up maybe Paul's description, many historians might say this. Paul was a guy who was pretty maybe small in stature. Most likely he was bald, didn't have hair. And then they say he may have had bow legs or crooked legs. Uh, the historians, some say he had a, a unibrow, okay? This guy had a unibrow. That's what they say. Eyebrows that are meeting. He had a crooked nose. And he probably had a lot of scars and a lot of physical problems with his body. Because after all, when you read Acts chapter 14 and you Acts, Acts chapter 16, and you read how he was beaten in these towns that we would visit. Sometimes he would be stoned almost to death. He would be jailed. And so this is a guy who's been through a lot physically and uh, he's beat up. And so it's no wonder then in verse three, he says, when I came to you, I came in weakness, in fear and trembling. He came to this town scared. He looked kind of timid, I think. And you can't blame him because every time he opened his mouth in any town, somebody would throw a rock, right? Somebody would be after him. Somebody would put him in jail. And so that's how Paul is. He's not an impressive man physically. There's nothing particularly great about his personality. There's no glamour of celebrity to distinguish him from the next guy. In fact, he looked pretty probably weak and foolish in the eyes of his people. Paul describes his ministry, the way he describes himself as the messenger and his ministry, it flies in the face of the expectations of people listening to the speakers of their day. And I also think it flies in the face of our expectations in our own culture today. Here's what I mean. Um, there was a New York Times bestseller called uh, Quiet, The Power of Introverts, in a world that can't stop talking. I don't know if you read it or heard it. I read a little bit about it, but the author's name is Susan Cain. And one of the things that she points out in this book is this. She writes about a cultural shift that's taken a place in America. And it's a cultural shift, a cultural shift from a culture of character that has now moved to a culture of personality. And it's very interesting what she says, and I wonder if you'll agree with her assessment, but listen to how she describes it. Quote, in the culture of character, the ideal self was serious, disciplined, and honorable. What counted was not so much the impression one made in public as for how one behaved in private. The word personality didn't exist in English until the 18th century. And the idea of having a good personality was not widespread until the 20th century. But when, the, when we embraced the culture of personality, Americans started fo to focus on what others perceived of them. They became captivated by people who were bold and entertaining, end quote. Isn't this interesting? The point that she's put on pointing out here is that she's saying that in our culture, not unlike the culture in ancient Corinth, has come to privilege big personalities They've come to prize charisma and even sometimes over character. They've come to, uh, I guess, I guess, 
hold important, not content, but style. And this is nothing new. In 1985, in a book by Neil Postman, an educator and social critic, in a book he called Amusing Ourselves to Death, this is what he says, quote, he says, survey shows that only 8% of an American audience pays attention to the content of a speech. Only 8%. 42% to the speaker's appearance. And 50% to how the person speaks. Style, he says, has overpowered substance, end quote. That's what it is in our culture. And in our culture today, if you saw Paul come into our culture today, this short, bald guy with a unibrow, bow-legged uh, you know, stance, and uh, very, very beat-up looking, very weak looking, very meek looking, come to you in public and try to talk to you about something important, would you listen to a guy like this? Would you give him time of day? Or let's put it another way, ladies. Would you date a guy like this? If this kind of guy came up to you and said, hey, hey, can I, you know, I was wondering if you had time for coffee and, you know, he's got a unibrow and he looks kind of sick and, and a crooked nose. I mean, would you, would you date a guy like this? Just by his looks is unimpressive. Would you take seriously what he had to say? And it's no wonder then, it's, a, it's no wonder how anyone then would listen to him, even back in Corinth, how anyone would take him seriously. But what does Paul tell us again in chapter one and throughout the whole letter? Over and over in this letter, Paul is reminding the Corinthians that they were converted. He's reminding them over and over again that the church was planted as a result of this message, because of, and in fact, in spite of this messenger who was characterized by weakness, trembling, and fear. Paul has been reminding these people over and over again that in fact they did listen and they became Christian. And the question you need to ask is this, how in the world were these Corinthians converted? How did they become Christian? How did this funny looking, sort of weak Jewish rabbi plant this church in such a hostile context like ancient Corinth? And negatively he said, this is what he was, but positively look at verse four, this is what he says. He says, I was with you in weakness and fear and trembling. My speech was, and message were not plausible in words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power. That's what he says, positively speaking. How did the people become Christian? It wasn't because the people that Paul spoke to were so smart or so spiritual or so great. They were weak and foolish, right? No, not many were noble, not many were of high status. And it wasn't because Paul himself was physically impressive or great, or that his speaking was smooth and polished and uh, very convicting. He also, I think, sounded and looked pretty weak and foolish in the eyes of the Corinthians. So how did they become Christians? And Paul says it very clearly in verse 4. It was a demonstration of the spirit and power. It was a demonstration of the spirit and power. He means that as he opened the Bible and he tried to apply this message to the hearts and minds of his hearers, God, by the power of spirit, took that message and he affected their lives. He affected their lives. Now, I want us to be clear about this, okay? Today, if you've ever been convicted by a message, 
that you heard, if you've ever been moved, if you have ever even been a least bit been challenged by someone's preaching, whether by my preaching or James or anywhere else that you've heard, if you ever heard a message and you thought, man, he's talking about me, I want you to understand it isn't just me or, or the preacher. It isn't just the pastor that's moving your heart. It's a demonstration of the spirit and power of God moving in your mind and hearts to listen and to think, to consider, to be moved and to be open. And so when we go through those moments, turn to God because I think maybe that's what he's doing in your heart. He's knocking on your heart and he's opening your mind. Okay. So that's the message. Jesus Christ, him crucified. This is the messenger. Paul says he's weak and foolish, but his reliance is upon the power of God. And last but not least, the, his motive. His motive, okay? The message, the messenger, and now the motive. And the motive is, the question is this, why? Why would God do it this way? Why would he, Paul want to do it this way? A weak and foolish man preaching and teaching a weak and foolish message that's probably going to most likely sound ineffective, inefficient, and unlikely to, to, to get results. Why would God do this? Why would, why would Paul do this? What's his motive in using this kind of method? And the answer here is in verse 5. Paul says this, So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So he says again, negatively, he says, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men. He doesn't want Paul or he doesn't want people being impressed with himself, with Paul. He doesn't want people following Paul. He has no interest, Paul has no interest in extending his personal influence over a bunch of people and gathering himself a following. Okay, He has no interest in people hanging on his every word. He wants their faith, rather, to rest somewhere else. Look at what he says. Positively, he says, he wants their faith to rest, not in the wisdom of men, but what? In the power of God. And that's his motive for bringing this weak message in the weakness of his own personal self. That's his motive, because he wants the power of God to be where the focus is. What does he mean by this? Uh, let me illustrate to you this way. I don't know what you're, you're probably already making a list of what you want to do once this uh, social distancing thing is over, you know, a long list. And maybe one of those lists, let's take, for example, maybe one of those things on your list is to go see a Broadway play. Maybe you want to see Hamilton, right? Imagine you've got your tickets, front row seats to Hamilton. And you go into the city, you get to the place, and you know how it works. You walk into the area, and there is an usher there. And the usher, his job is to lead you to his seat so that you can comfortably watch this play. Now, imagine you go there, and this usher is now ushering you to your seat, and he's got the flashlight, and he shows you where your seat. You go down, and you, and you sit down there, and you're waiting for the play to start. And as the play starts, you can't see it because imagine that the usher hasn't left. He's still in front of you. His job was to just lead you to the seat, but he's in front of you and he's blocking the view. What do you do? This play has started. What do you say? And what any of us would say is this, please get out of the way. Move out of the way. 
Move out of the way because you're blocking my view. You're blocking the view of what I came to see. What is Paul's motive? Why does God use the weakness of a person to preach the weakness of a message to get people to become changed? What's his motive? And the answer Paul's saying basically is this, that you don't rest on people, but you rest on the power of God. And what he's trying to say is this, move out of the way. Move out of the way. Once everything is said and done by people, get it out of the way. Get the cult of personality out of the way. Move out of the way human accomplishment, ability, or human effort. Get out of the way all the glitz and glamour and pomp and circumstance of our entertainment culture. Move out of the way even the messenger, even Apostle Paul himself. Why? Because what we're supposed to focus on is not the person, but the power of God. So that the power of God may shine clearly, even through weakness, so that he and God alone can receive your worship, can receive your love and your commitment. Get everything else out of the way so that God will be your focus and he receives the glory. That's why. That was his motive. Right? That's why God does what he does in using a person like Paul in this place, Corinth. It's the same thing that, for example, John the Baptist, another messenger in John chapter 3, John the Baptist, what does he say when he meets Jesus Christ? He says, he must increase, but I must decrease. And that's what Paul is saying, in effect. He's saying, I don't want you following me. I want your faith resting on the power of God, resting upon the work of Christ and the mighty working of the Holy Spirit in your hearts, not in me, right, but in God. Friends, to put it plainly, don't look to your pastors for what only Jesus can give you. As important as pastors and messengers are, as important as preachers are, don't look to your pastors for only what God can do for you. Look to Christ, Paul is saying. Trust in God, Paul is saying. That is where your confidence needs to land. Not in men, but in the God who speaks through weakness of men by his word. That's his motive. Let me just end it kind of this way. The messenger that God uses, like the message that he blesses and the people that he saves, is apparently weak and foolish in the eyes of the world. But what Paul is saying, that there is power in weakness. Why? Because the blessing of God, you see, is found not in the power of our speech, nor in the pedigree of the people, nor in the personalities of its leaders, but the power of God is found in the gospel itself, anointed by the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That's where our confidence needs to rest. Do you understand what Paul is going through? Now, as we think about this over the week, hopefully you'll think about it. And next week, when we come to this passage and we think about it for ourselves, what about your weaknesses? What about your struggles right now? What about areas in your life where you feel like you've come short, right? How do you process this? Do you... Are you beginning to understand what Paul means later in 2 Corinthians 12 when he says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong? Do you understand how the cross affects you in his weakness? Do you understand in your moments 
of your struggle, your, your inability of those difficult moments of pain, even suffering, even in this moment uh, of this, uh, this pandemic, even in moments of frustration, your moments of weakness, your moments, how do you process them as a people of faith? And I think what we begin to see here and what we're looking to next week is this. We begin to see that as Paul embraces his weakness, he relies on the power of God to do what he could never do by himself. And I'll pray and I hope we do the same. Let's take a moment to pray.